song Calling Cthulhu. It's from the album Do They Walk Among Us. It's from the band The Suction Cups. You can find them at thesuctioncups.bandcamp.com or look them up on Facebook or maybe you'll see them around town if you happen to live in Springfield, Illinois. They gave us permission to open up this episode of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. It's Monster Kid Radio. It's episode 279 and it's me. Your writer, producer, and host, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show. I'm excited to have a brand new voice to add to the Monster Kid Radio collection, polka deck, or whatever. I've got Peter Rollick on the show. Peter Rollick is a Lovecraftian, which is why we're playing the song Calling Cthulhu. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of his books, his Lovecraftian weird fiction I thoroughly enjoy what I've read so far, and, well, you'll hear all about it when I introduce him to the listeners of Monster Kid Radio. Hey, did you know that Monster Kid Radio has a Facebook presence? We have both a page and a group, and somebody over there um, kind of called me out on... Well, okay, they really didn't call me out. They just pointed something out about last week's episode when we talked about the movie The Navy versus the Night Monsters. One of the main characters in that movie is named Charlie Brown. And we couldn't figure out why they made such a big deal out of calling the character Charlie Brown. Every time somebody walked into the scene, hey, Charlie Brown, what are you doing here? You know what? It was pointed out to me. The Night Monsters in the Navy versus the Night Monsters? Well, they're tree monsters. And Charlie Brown did have a kite-eating tree. So anyway, head over to Facebook to get involved in conversations like that. You can look up the group or the page or follow the links in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. If you are a Facebook user, please consider giving our page a like. As of right now, facebook.com slash monsterkidradio has 910 likes. We are shooting for 1,000 by the end of the year. Will you be the person to give us our 1,000th like? You might win a toaster or something, I'm just saying. One more thing before we get to the topic at hand. I want to do something a little different here on this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Maybe we'll do this every week. It'll be a new tradition, something we add to the mix. I've got a movie quote for you. I'm going to read you a movie quote, and by the end of the episode, I'll tell you what movie it came from. So you're going to have, however long this episode is, to figure it out. And here's a hint or a spoiler. The movie this quote comes from is mentioned in my conversation with Peter. So <clears throat> here's the quote. What kind of deals do you have with the director of the morgue? Again, what kind of deals do you have with the director of the morgue? I'll reveal what movie that came from at the end of the episode after you hear my conversation with Peter Rollick about The Creature Wonks Among Us, and it is part one of a part two conversation, so lots to get to, and we're going to get to all of that right after this. <laughs> we are witnessing a biological chain reaction, a geometrical progression of deadly menace. It had started casually, insignificantly, as momentous events often do. Look there. Two points off the port bow. The giant behemoth, the fire-spitting monster predicted in the Bible, its core a mass of lethal radiation. 
rising from the depths of time, its strength enormous, its gargantuan ferocity a threat to London, to the world itself. We must find a way of destroying this creature in one piece. Judging by the beast's size, I would say it was powerful enough to drive a battleship. Of course, its tremendous electric charge is what projects the radiation. That's what makes the creature so deadly. Well, have you any concrete suggestions? Yes. First, block off the Thames. Hello, Christopher. What insanity are you up to today? Oh, hey, Lydia. I'm downloading some movies. What? People are always telling me that's illegal. Uh-uh, not these. They're all public domain. Oh, look, Rescue from Gilligan's Island. Well, let me see what you're doing. Oh, you're at archive.org. Well, they have thousands of films, TV shows, commercials, radio shows, and books available. Yeah, but there are so many. I wish there was a podcast or something that would discuss these things. You know, give us an idea of what's worth the time. Um, Christopher, there is. We do one. Oh, that's right. We host Orphan Entertainment. Once a month, we pick something and review and discuss it. That sure is nice of us. <laughs> sure. Why don't you click over to Orphan Entertainment and remind yourself a little more about the show. Oh, will do. Let's see, that's at orphanentertainment.com. And yeah, it looks like we're available on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Oh, hey, can we review the Gilligan's Island movie someday? Mm-hmm, we'll see, Christopher. We'll see. But the room was quiet. Had it been a nightmare? What woke him? Was the candle in the antique mirror moving? Was there something standing by the curtains? Was he mad? Ah! The Crimson Cult. So terrifying they won't let us tell you about it here. And on the same bill, Horror House. A nightmare combination of shock and terror. See them together for the first time. But don't see them alone. Rated GP. This is Julia Adams. And you are listening to Monster Kid Radio. Have a good time. This week's guest on Monster Kid Radio is somebody that I think I've been on a panel with at the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival here in Portland. I know we've been on panels at the festival and we've kind of traveled in the same circles, but this is the first time he's been on my podcast. Peter Rollick, welcome to Monster Kid Radio. Hey, Derek. How are you? I'm glad to be here. I'm doing great, man. Thank you for doing this. I'm excited to have you on the show. We were talking a little bit before we started recording here about some of your books. I want to let listeners know that The Weird Company, Reanimators, both excellent Lovecraftian novels, have a little bit of a Monster Mash feel. Listeners, you got to check this stuff out. Thanks. Those are some of my my favorite things that I've done. Obviously, they're odes to Lovecraft, but also to some of my favorite monster movies and film noirs from the 40s and 30s. Really tried to bring a whole bunch of things I love together. You know, I look at your author page on Amazon, and I'm seeing so many different anthologies that you've been involved with. And I didn't realize, I suppose I should pay more attention, but I've got a number of these books on my shelf as well. So not only do I have your novels, I've got a bunch of your short stories. That's what's really surprising to me is that... At one point, when we all start out, we can't get published at all. You, you submit stories, and they just don't go anywhere. And then you find the editor who gets what you're trying to do and is willing to work with you and, and help you fix your craft. And then all of a sudden, you take off, and you're churning out a story a month, if not more. 
and you're in all these anthologies and the bookshelf just keeps growing and growing and growing. And I'm really happy. It's like this dream come true. I, I've achieved what I wanted to do. If I never do anything else, I'm happy. Wow. How long have you been writing for? I sold my first story, I think back in 97, 98, something like that. Okay. Um, to a magazine called Tailbones. And it was not a Lovecraftian story. Um, and I had not set out to be a Lovecraftian author. Uh, I had modeled myself after the people I grew up reading, most uh, science fiction-wise, uh, Larry Niven and Joe Lansdale, those kinds of places. The story I sold is, is actually a very, in my mind, a very Joe Lansdale story. But after that, I wrote that story. <laughs> I couldn't sell another story for like a year. <laughs> and I, I gave up. And I started working on just doing this timeline of the mythos. This was inspired by a, a book called Libris Miskatani, which is a false history of the Miskatonic University Library. And I was just thrilled by that book. So I said, all right, you know what? I want to do a history of Arkham and the whole Miskatonic Valley. So I started culling through my Lovecraftian library. I've got like four or 500 volumes of Lovecraftian fiction and putting that together. And I realized that at one point, Asnith Waite, Randolph Carter as Swami Chandraputra, and the unnamed narrator from the Shadow of Innsmouth, who we now call Olmstead, were all in or around Arkham at the same time. And it just seemed to be just this great opportunity to put these characters together. So I put those characters together in a timeline, and I fleshed out a story. And I really wanted to use Herbert West as sort of this League of Lovecraftian gentlemen story. But the timeline for Herbert West doesn't work. He's dead by then, or most, or, or deadish. Uh, <laughs> you can say mostly dead. You're about to say that. Go ahead. Yeah, mostly. He's mostly dead. He's mostly dead. <laughs> deadish. Yeah. I, I, yeah. When they re, they did the remake of uh, Day of the Dead, I think that's the greatest line. Is everybody dead there? Well, deadish. <laughs> uh, so yeah. Um, but anyway, so uh, Herbert West doesn't work in the timeline. So I was like, all right, but I really wanted somebody with his abilities as a reanimator. So I borrowed uh, Hartwell from the Dunwich Horror. He's got like one paragraph. He's uh, Armitage's physician. And I just ma- gave him this huge backstory. And I, you know, I wrote a story about him to give him some idea of, of what his motivations were. And then I wrote another story. And then I wrote another story. And then I you know, I have reanimators. So Weird Company generates reanimators. Mm-hmm. But Weird Company was the book that was for coming first. Oh, okay. But it went through a lot of changes. It's like the League of Lovecraftian Gentlemen, the Miskatonic Men's Club, and the idea was to actually have uh, Asnith with a, with a lipstick crossing out men's. Um, <laughs> so it's, uh, the Miskatonic Oddfellows Club, uh-huh. uh, all these different stories, uh, and Shadow Over Arkham. But we finally settled on the Weird Company, and I think it worked really well. Oh, I love the title. I mean, it, it tells you exactly what you're getting into, I feel like. Yeah. In, in both Reanimators and Weird Company, I drop hints about uh, the Peasleys and um, Megan Halsey, always with the full intent of going back and writing their story. The next book, which will be out in October, will be Reanimatrix. And it will cover the adventures of Robert Peasley, who is the son of uh, Wingate Peasley 
from The Shadow Out of Time. And Megan Halsey, who is the daughter of uh, Alan Halsey, who dies at the very beginning of uh, a Herbert West Reanimator. You know, I could talk Lovecraft for our listeners. know I've got a huge love for Lovecraft. And to have some Lovecraftian authors on Monster Kid Radio is just a treat for me because I could just totally sideline and we're gonna talk about monster movies now let's talk lovecraft but the <laughs> listeners i i cannot speak highly enough of these books it, it speaks to the comic book nerd in me because we start to see all the things come together and like this crisis of lovecraftian earths or whatever uh you, you get everything kind of coming together and it's continuity that i love putting things together like just the monster match oh i'm starting to ramble and babble here as <laughs> soon as we're done recording i think i'm gonna crack one of these open again because i, I just loved them Fantastic work, man. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so uh, we could talk Lovecraft. but yeah, I, let's talk about something else. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm sure you, you talk about Lovecraft everywhere you go. You're a Lovecraftian guy. Uh, and come October, I'm assuming you're going to be out here at the festival again. Yes. I just got noticed that I will be there. Are you going to be a guest? Yes. Excellent, my brother. All right. Fellow guests will be there at the Lovecraft Film Festival. So listeners, start hitchhiking now to get to Portland in October. It'll be a blast. Hey, I probably have to come farther from anybody else in the continental United States. You and I are on opposite ends of the country. Yeah, you're in Portland. I'm in Palm Beach. Yeah. So I don't even think the Aleutians are farther from you. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I'd have to look at that. I'll, I'll have to look at that. Yeah, we'll, we'll Google that later. We'll Google yeah. that later. Well, the reason I wanted to have Peter on the show, and I, you know, I try to have my Lovecraftian brothers and sisters on the show as much as I can, but the reason I wanted to have him, have him on the show is the other day he posted on Facebook some photos from, was that your office, your writing area? <laughs> it's actually my downstairs bathroom. Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> some movie posters and such on the wall, and, and he, of course he had a Creature poster in there, and Creature being my favorite film, I, I had to talk to him and ask him about it and started yeah. talking about the sequels and you know i know the third film in that series doesn't hit on all the cylinders as the first one certainly or even the second one but as i go along and as the longer i'm a monster kid the more i respect it and appreciate it for what it is and actually find interesting things to talk about it with other people with but peter before we get into that we have a game that we yeah. play here on monster kid radio called the classic five and i wanted okay. to play that with you the classic five is i've got a deck of cards Okay, sure. Maybe about a hundred cards or so. Each one of these cards has a question about classic monster movies. Yes or no, this or that, which movie do you prefer style questions. Okay. Every time we have somebody on the show, we try to play it with them just to kind of let listeners know a little bit more about our guest Monster Kid Roots. Okay. What do you think? You want to play the classic five? Oh, absolutely. Excellent. I'll do classic ten if you want. <laughs> All right. Let me, let me give them a good shuffle here. Right, that way it's totally random. All right, card number one, question number one. Here we go. Oh, ha. Christopher Lee or Peter Cushing? Peter Cushing. Yeah, my man. He's, well, he, I think he's a little bit suaver. He's smaller. He's more debonair. And he has to work harder. Huh. And I think he pulls it off. If I were playing, I'd also go with Peter Cushing. But you're right, I think, because of the size difference. Christopher Lee is just immediately imposing, but you're absolutely right. Christopher Lee is really imposing. He's got that deep, booming voice. And Peter Cushing is just like this kid you would push around on the playground, right? Yeah, until you see him stitch a monster together or something exactly. like that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Huh. I mean, and in a lot of movies, he has that lisp. Mm -hmm. uh, and plus, he was in Top Secret. So, you know, how could you not love Peter Cushing? <laughs> wow. I've gone 270 plus episodes of Monster Kid Radio. I don't think we've ever talked about Top Secret. That's fantastic. 
<laughs> well, why would you? It's it's really not a monster. <laughs> no, but that one scene is perfect with the with yeah. the big eye and the magnifying yeah. glass, and the whole thing's done in reverse anyway. It's just fantastic. Yep. Wow. All right. Card number two. <laughs> what classic monster movie would you like to see as an animated remake? That's an animated remake. Well, just because I love big old monster fests. Mm-hmm. Destroy all monsters. Ooh. The following announcement is a special bulletin, direct from American International. It may be too late. Our planet may be doomed. Armies have been alerted. The hotlines are in constant use. Civilization is in chaos. The monsters are in revolt. Now a direct report. This is J. Webb in New York. Godzilla is laying waste to the city. The citizens have never known such fear. At the same time, Rodan is attacking Moscow. The city is alert for military action. In London, Manda is spreading horror in its path. And in the Far East, Peking trembles under the wrath of Mothra. We must destroy all monsters. Yes, destroy all monsters, or our civilization will be destroyed. Destroy all monsters is a motion picture. See for yourself. It really could happen. Destroy all monsters in color from American International is rated G for general audiences. What you can't do with a live-action suit, guys, you could do magnificently in animation. Would you want to see it hand-drawn or computer-generated? That's not a question. I'm just curious. I'd like Miyazaki to do it. Oh. So, yes. A little bit of hand-drawn, a little bit of animated. Okay. A little bit of computer-generated. You, I, I think you can mix it well. Yeah. Wow. Okay, head spinning. Yeah. That's good. Huh. All right, card number three. Question number three. Favorite actor to play Dracula? Favorite actor to play Dracula? Oh. <laughs> so I have two choices, and you're not going to like either one of them. Uh-oh. No, not Eddie Murphy. Um, <laughs> wow, 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 um, okay. You know, so what's not downstairs, what's in storage uh, in a box is my copy of Love at First Bite, the original movie poster. <laughs> He's here at last. Good evening. Count Dracula comes to New York in a story of blazing caskets, smoking, burning passion. I heard the rooster crow. <laughs> It's explosive. When you come back tonight, it's okay to use the front door. Sensational. Oh, my God. Are you biting me? Love at First Bite. Rated BG. The number one comedy hit of the year is now playing at a theater or drive-in near you. <laughs> so, so, yeah. George Hamilton. Wow. He's just, you know, he takes that whole... He's so deadpan. And yes, it's a comedy, but I think he pulls it off really, really well. And honestly, it was like the first time I'd seen a, a Dracula in color. Because I, th- I, think, I think my father took me to see it in the theaters. And it may have been the first Dracula I ever saw. Oh, wow. Okay. I can see that having an impression then. Sure. Yeah. I knew Dracula. And probably because I was such a Lovecraftian guy. And more into things like the blob and uh, the thing from another world. I had really ignored Universal Monsters until my late teens. You know, I sort of come to Universal backwards. Okay. And as uh, also to Hammer Horror as well. Also, my generation, the late 70s, early 80s, were flooded with 
serial killers. Yeah. So when we wanted to go see a horror movie, we saw Jason or Freddy or Michael. That was our horror, that, that was the horror that I was forced into. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'll tell this story. When we got our first VCR and then we got our first club membership, my parents sent my sister and I in to get a movie. And my sister was allowed to pick. And she was probably 10, maybe 12 at the time. And she picked I Spit on Your Grave. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, it, a movie which my father and I walked out of because there are certain scenes that are, shall we say, tender? <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. I was going to say, that movie's hard enough to watch now. I'm trying to imagine a 10 year old girl watching it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That was our core horror. And struggling to find other films uh, was really hard. We didn't have the great releases that we have today. If you wanted a classic movie, you had to hunt for it on like a UHF channel. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And you might get lucky. You know, we had a couple you know, like creature feature shows, but it was always hit and miss with those. You never knew what you were going to get. You might get Catwoman on the Moon or, you know, it came from Mars, but you never knew what you were going to get. Now, whew, you can choose whatever you want. We, we live in a pretty spectacular age. Yeah, you know, I think us monster kids have so much at hand. And there's still more out there that I want to see. But yeah, my my movie collection and my various streaming memberships are you know, stacking up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we have Netflix, and we've been doing two movies at a time for so long. And the queue used to be like 50 to 100 movies long. And now it's down to under 20. Because I've, I've just torn through everything I've wanted to watch my entire life. Mm-hmm. And now I'm thinking about backing off to just doing one movie a week. I've definitely cut back. It seems like a lot of the movies that were in my queue just start falling off anyway because they get lost or broken. And they, just, they don't replace them as much anymore right. because they're moving so much towards streaming, which is fine. Because uh, I still find plenty of things streaming wise or Amazon or whatever. So that's yeah. good stuff. You said All Hamilton right. was one of two. There's a second one. Yep. Okay. That was third. That was two. We're going three. No, that was three. So yeah, go ahead. Well, I thought you said there were oh, two yeah, Dracula yep. actors. Uh, yeah. Eddie Murphy. Um, but were, were you being serious about Eddie Murphy? <laughs> I was like, yeah, no, no, okay, no. okay. 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 I get it. Okay. I, get I was it. joking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. George Hamilton. Okay. Okay. All right, card number four. The Twilight Zone or The Outer Limits? Oh, wow. You have to choose? It's tough, I know. Um, I, I got to go with The Twilight Zone. Rod's the man. Really is. And I would actually say, take it one step further, and if you gave me the choice, I would say Night Gallery. I was just thinking that, that you know, being a Lovecraft guy... Night Gallery had so many excellent Lovecraft adaptations and fun yeah. little adaptations uh, that were just inspired by Lovecraft's good stuff. Yeah. Cool Air on Night Gallery is just fantastic. Oh, exactly. um, and I read this recently, and I, I didn't trace down to see if it was true or not, but apparently there was a guy who went to uh, the, the studio and said, look, you're doing this show called Night Gallery. I have all this horrific art. Will you feature it? You know, Could you write stories around it? And what he didn't know is that all the art on that show was created by one guy. 
Huh. And it just he was just this guy was just a master of different styles. Uh-huh. And he was able to produce all these different paintings and they basically churned them out. That's the story I read. I didn't it may be apocryphal, mm-hmm. but I I'd, I'd like to redo the research on that again. I'm actually planning a, a night gallery roundtable with a few guys uh, on the show in the future. So if I stumble, stumble across anything, yeah, um, yeah, let me know. And if we can make the schedules work, you know, yeah, sure, the right. yeah, absolutely. If you want to, because well, I just night gallery was so wonderful because it, it gave you, in some cases, the the painting was actually critical to the story, right? Especially in the earlier seasons, I feel like, right? You know, I'm thinking about the one where the guy is like being tortured. And he ends up being crucified in the painting, or he escapes into the painting onto the onto the boat. You know that's so. It was sort of like this. Oh my God, the painting exists, so the story must be true. That was just kind of a great way to tell a story. And it was like, oh, all the evidence you need is right there. Mm-hmm. All right. So fifth question. All right, fifth question. Final card. Favorite Vincent Price film. Oh, really? These are tough, man. Because there's so many. Yes, there are. And I have been going back and, and I watched Madhouse the other day. Ooh, okay. And a whole slew of them. But the one I like, and the, this is why I still have a VCR. Because I don't think it's a. I think it might be available on DVD now, but The House of Long Shadow. What lives in this house? No one would want to live in Balpatar Manor. What stalks these halls? It's a cursed place. Yes, I saw the movie. What hides in these shadows? And who is playing that piano? <coughs> Welcome to the house of the long shadows. Home of mystery. <coughs> Suspense. Danger. And now the four masters of horror are moving in. Vincent Price. We came here this evening to unlock the final door to our destiny. Christopher Lee. It would seem, Mr. McGee, that we are imprisoned here. Peter Cushing. It is all I have ever known. Fear. John Carradine. Death is our only true destiny. Joined by Desi Arnaz. You ain't seen nothing yet. House of the Long Shadows. (laughs) The murderously funny mystery with a twist. Yes, I see what you mean. House of the Long Shadows. Vincent Price, that's me, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, John Carradine, and Desi Arnaz. In a Golan Globus production of a Pete Walker film, House of the Long Shadows. Canon releasing. It is out now. I remember seeing it before I really realized who all these people were. Yeah. And then when I started to learn who these people were, I was like, man, I remember a movie where they were all in it. What was that movie called? And it took me years to remember what it was. Yes, and and I guess yeah. The the hard part is it's Desi Arnaz Jr. I was gonna say yeah, he's the weakest point, unfortunately. But you got these other. I mean, to go back to Cushing and Lee, and, and then Garradine. I mean, yep. Oh, and, but you know, and that that one's pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good. But mostly because once again, it's the only film they all got to work together on. Right. I mean, they they had done some things here and there, like one or or two of them off, but to have all three of them or four of them. Yeah. Fantastic. And I think the movie actually just came out on Blu-ray last year. The other thing, and this is this is a dark horse, because it's not a horror movie. Okay. Well, it's okay. Vincent Price is excellent as this suave and sleazy dilettante in 
Laura. You have rarely met a girl like Laura. Few women have been so beautiful, so exotic, so dangerous to know. You're Laura Hunt, aren't you? Yes. I'm Shelby Carpenter. Want to dance? I'm not alone. Oh, you poor girl. I bet he still does the polka. Yes, Betsy Ross taught it to me. It was as natural for Laura to be picked out from among thousands of alluring girls as it was for her to be surrounded by luxury, mystery, and scheming men. Every woman will feel that when it comes to men, Laura gets by with murder. Every man will feel that when it comes to murder, it couldn't involve a more enticing girl. Don't worry. I told you I'd bring in the killer today. Yeah, I was just going to make the arrest when you called. No, I can't tell you now. I'm not alone. You'll see when I come in. Laura is actually the basis for Reanimatrix. Really? Yes. Okay. Think about the premise of Laura. You got this this cop who picks up a case in which a girl is murdered. But she's not really dead. Okay, yeah. Now, take that and put it into Arkham. Oh boy. <laughs> All right. So, we've we've danced around the subject. Uh-huh. But I will answer. The abominable Dr. Fibes. Ah, oh, there you go. That. And, and the return of, of Fibes. But sure. The abominable Dr. Fibes is just, it's artistic, it's campy, it's horrific. It's almost as if a, a, a Italian giallo film was made in Britain. Uh, <laughs> That's a good way to put it. It's just, it's way over the top. Mm-hmm. And I think just they used... Price the greatest way they could. You never see his mouth move, but he's got all this fabulous dialogue. He's got a heck of a voice. And yeah. I mean, you've got this wonderful image of him as Fives, where he's clearly not speaking, but you still get to hear him. And it's just, mm, he's got the body language, he's got the dial. It's just perfect. It yeah. really is an amazing it's performance. It's a great use of him. Mm-hmm. So, yes, the abominable Dr. Fives. Right on. All right. Well, that was the classic five listeners. What do you think of Peter's answers? Let me know. What lovely music for a murder or two or three or nine. Who's this? Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to meet a dear friend. Nine killed you. Nine shall die. Your wife, no fives. But you I will kill. But you can't, Doctor. I am already dead. Here, how are we going to get him off this? You take his head and I'll take his feet. Let's unscrew him. Dr. Fives, who samples the finer things, of life in his own inimitable way because uh, boils and bats frogs frogs yes and because of blood because of hail in the bloody middle of nowhere Ready for Dr. Five. You warmed up? 
Yes, I Feeling am. good? All right. So uh, we're going to move from the classic five. And you mentioned Universal movies a, a little bit ago that you kind of came to them a little bit later. Yes. The movie we're talking about right now is a Universal film. It's later in the classic cycle. Uh, actually, kind of, I feel like, bridges the gap between the classic cycle and maybe the more sci-fi radioactive stuff that they were doing in the 50s. The movie is The Creature Walks Among Us. It's the third film in the Creature from the Black Lagoon series. And like I said earlier, I've really warmed up to this over the years. When I first saw it, though, I was not a fan. Really? I, I just, you know, I wanted more Creature. And I felt like they just took that away from me way too early in the film. Plus, it wasn't directed by Jack Arnold, and it just doesn't have the same vibe as the other two to me. Right. That said, as I've gone along, I've, I've come to really enjoy it. What was your first impression when you saw this film? Where, where did you come at this from? I think I, I fell on with where, where you're at, is that it's, at first glance, it's, I think it's the weaker of the films. Mm-hmm. Because once again, you, the, first of all, I think there's a lot of stock footage. Oh, yeah. Of the creature. Mm-hmm. Second, you, as soon as you capture the creature, you wrap it up in gauze. And when you finally take the creature out, it's a completely different creature. Who's grown like six or seven inches. Yeah. 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 It's not <laughs> tall, but in the chest width as well. Right. Yeah. It's suddenly it's gone from this lithe little thing that moves through the water fast to a linebacker. Very different creature. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah. Okay. We can live with that. And I want, I wonder if part of that is, is because the original suit is damaged and, you know, we're not going to spend the money to make a new one. And, you know, this is the cheap way to do it. So it's kind of disappointing, mm-hmm. and you watch this, and it's like, oh, there's not a lot of action. They put the creature in a cage, it kills a cougar, and then it just sort of stays there until it's sinned against. It's set up to take the blame for a murder it doesn't commit, and then it freaks out because it knows. Yeah, it's kind of, of not the same as the previous two films. But then I watched all three films again, and I'm realizing that there's a lot of similarities between these films. And not just the stock footage. Besides just the stock footage. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) In that I think the creature is actually incidental to what's going on in the film, in all of them. The first film is about a conflict between two scientists. Right, there's that love triangle thing going on. Right, there's a love triangle thing, and one scientist wants to kill the creature and one wants to catch it alive. And that's like a, a big thing in, in conservation biology. We used to, when we wanted to conserve animals, we used to go out and hunt them. And we bring them back and stuff them and put them in museums. And then it sort of transformed as like, well, no, we should leave them natural in the environment and study them. So you're seeing this conflict between these two branches of conservation science right there. Mm-hmm. And there's this girl caught in the middle. Sure. So let's go to the second movie. One guy goes down, he captures the creature, he brings it back to the aquarium. There's an attractive girl. He's interested in her. But there's also this guy who's got a lot of brains, not a lot of brawn. And, you know, once again, there's a little bit of a conflict between two different branches of science. One that says, let's go out and capture things and bring them back and put them on display. And the other branch that says, we want to study this thing and understand it. And the girl caught in the middle. Right. Not a lot. Because there's, you know, one guy just bows out gracefully. Right. It's not as pronounced as in the first film, but yeah. 
Right. And in the third film, there's kind of this conflict between this guy and the scientist and then this guy and another guy who's hitting on his wife. Mm-hmm. But it's all sort of made up in his mind. He's so, so paranoid about things. So these three movies are really about relationships. And the, the creature is just sort of incidental to some of it. Yeah, he just happened to be where the breakdown occurs. And I agree with yeah. you. And I think that's what I really glom onto now with Creature Blocks Among Us is the relationship between, you know, the man and his much younger wife. And right. is she or is she not leading this other guy on? And, and the conversation that she's having with the other doctor. And I, I just am fascinated with that. And, and I could watch a movie with just that. I only, this might sound blasphemous because I love my Gilman. But I don't right. even think I need him in this story to still be engaged. No, you know, you don't. You know, he's just there to bring all the men together and destroy this guy's relationship. <laughs> True. And, and you know, the other thing I'll say is that in the first two movies, there is a a woman and she is in a bathing suit. But in the third movie, the woman in the bathing suit, this much younger wife, is in my mind very hypersexualized for the time. They linger on her body and, and her swimming in the bathing suit much longer than they did in the first two movies. Almost telegraphing. This is all about her sexuality and how the, pe- the men around her are going to deal with that. There's that plus I feel like she's a little bit more um... – Gosh, I don't know what the right word would be, but she's hunting sharks with a rifle. Yes. yes. Which, which you don't see the other two women do. And, and I love my Julie Adams. I mean, I call her my 50s girlfriend for a reason. I mean, she's a, she's just wonderful. But I think this character, played by Lee Snowden, Marsha, I think her name is, uh, Dr. Barton's wife. Yeah. There is this, this very strong sexuality, but they're also, I, I feel like, adding a little bit more of a, an assertiveness to her a little bit more agency to her that you don't see in the previous two films, which would definitely be a threat as well for 1950s men. Well, the other thing to consider is that in the two, first two movies, the, the woman is actually a scientist. Right. And in the third one, in this one, she's really just there to create conflict. Yeah. Real or imagined. And, of course, what happens is the imagined conflict boils over and leads to this poor guy's downfall. Which I think is acted masterfully, by the way. I, yeah. I want to I comment on the acting here. Dr. Barton, Jeff Morrow, who's a stalwart of a lot of these 50s monster movies, uh, This Island Earth, you know, just he's a fantastic actor in these movies. And he's got a great, well, they all have great voices in this film. The, there's a, um, a mania kind of just bubbling underneath the surface with him yeah. that I, I think is just uh, phenomenal. I mean, I'm more scared of him than the creature in this film. You know what the creature's motives are. Right. He wants to go back to the ocean. Mm-hmm. He pretty much wants to be left alone. As long as you don't throw a pretty girl in, in a white a swimsuit in front of him, <laughs> he's fine. This guy, you look at his wife the wrong way and you'll get your throat cut. And he'll blame it on somebody else. <laughs> and, and he'll blame it on somebody else, yeah. <laughs> or something else, yeah. Yeah. Now, the other thing that I, I'll talk about here is that in some ways, you know, I talked about this we, the other day with you, is that a lot of ways when they do this, oh, we're going to make a, a, a new man out of this creature, it's very Frankenstein. And when you brought that up, it was like, you know, that's 
a really interesting point because the Frankenstein film, it wasn't the first in the cycle, but it's very, very beginning of the universal horror boom. And to see this happening with Creature Walks Among Us, kind of bringing it back, it's a nice little wraparound. And it's just a, yeah. it's something I hadn't considered until you brought it up. Yeah, I, I, you could take the Creature from the Black Lagoon out of this movie and put Frankenstein in, and you wouldn't have to change anything. No, I don't think so at all. Not even the title. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. you're right, yeah. And in, in some ways, what this guy is doing is, is very, not only Frankenstein, but also Dr. Moreau, but kind of reversed. Mm-hmm. Instead of trying to take an animal up and make them a human, you're taking something else and trying to make them a human. But it's just weird that I, it wouldn't surprise me. I, I'd like to do the research and see what script writers were involved and where they got their their inspiration and what else they had done because it does seem to be a, a more mad scientist movie than a, a natural creature movie. Yeah. Arthur Ross was the screenwriter on this and he worked on the first creature. He also did a number of other films, but uh, a couple of weeks ago here on monster kid radio, we had Frank J. Delostrito on who's a, an author and a scholar monster kid. And he spoke about how a lot of these classic monster movies, starting with you know, the 30s on through the 50s, you would see these plays on evolution and Darwinism. Uh, up until the 60s, when the movie Inherit the Wind came out and kind of went mainstream, this is where you'd see all this, this discussion about genetics and changing life from one form to another through forced evolution. Yeah. And, and this one really... Hits on all those points. I mean, he's talking about we want to make it so the humans can go into outer space. Well, okay, um, leave the creature and, alone, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the funny thing is, it's like when you the first movie starts, this this whole sort of biblical overtone, right? Right. Yeah. In the beginning, the Earth cooled. And, mm-hmm. You know, the, then dinosaurs came and it turned into oil. <laughs> to paraphrase, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, you know, but then it's sort of like this whole th- that whole moral goes away the whole idea that you're going to fall into this whole biblical play and say you don't play god that just goes away and you go right into a purely scientific expedition and and scientific movie there's no morality religious morality play in this thing at all no which sort of deviates it from the other movies in the universal monsters theme okay you know, Dracula is obviously well, sure. occult-based. So is the mummy. Mm-hmm. Frankenstein, while it's a scientific thing, is still a, a morality play of don't play God. You True. don't make things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then you know, I, we I said Dracula already. Yeah. So here, it's the first real scientific monster to come out and say, eh, "We're we're not going to talk about God and religion or the occult in this series." I just, you know, I just realized that. So if I'm fumbling it. No, no. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, I, th- I think an argument could be made about the Invisible Man being a, a science-based, but okay. I think you're right. No, I think you're right. This definitely has, even though there's a monster, quote-unquote monster in this, which, you know, in the Invisible Man, is he really a monster? Is he just a guy who had a bad idea? Um, right. <laughs> uh, I think you're right. This is more of that kind of science adventurer style yep. kind of moving into into the monster realm. Yes, yes. And, you know, we talked, you talked earlier about how this sort of bridges the gap to the 50s horror, sci-fi horror. And and I think you're right. Here is the first jumping off point to things like them 
or the blob. Even Universal's tarantula and things like that. Tarantula, yes. Donovan's brain. Ooh, yeah. Um, God, I haven't seen that in forever. I need to see that again. Yeah, I found that, I found that used and I had to buy it. The, the greatest thing that ever happened for my movie collection was Blockbuster and all these other movie places going out of business. Yeah, I was just talking with my wife the other day. There's a news story about how all the Hastings are closing down. And there was a Hastings yeah. where she and I met. And I was like, man, if we still live there, I'd just be clearing that place out. Because, you know, it's all on clearance right now. Yeah. Yeah. I totally could see that. The, the bridge and... You know, in the 50s, there's the atomic bomb and everything else, and, and radiation. Right. It's, ooh, you know, the real, the big bad. So, yep. Y- and we're not can- scared of God so much as what we could do to ourselves. Right, right. So you don't have the, the ooh, spooky overtones anymore. You know, I think there's even, I mean, even some of the, uh, the old tropes, you know, the Frankenstein monster, you get Frankenstein 1970, or, you know, Atomic Age Vampire. You start throwing the science into these older monsters. Right. Well, Frankenstein versus Baragon. Yeah, with the Toho stuff. No, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we'll take this Frankenstein monster and reduce it to a beating heart, and then we'll regrow the entire monster over again. Yeah. Giant size. <laughs> what? Well, and that had such resonance too. The Frankenstein part of that had such resonance that for a long time, a lot of the kaiju films in Germany were given a title with the word Frankenstein in the name because that's what that monster became. Yeah. You know, that, that became the pop culture science baddie. Yes. Yes. So, which oh, makes for yeah. some interesting giant monster movie posters out of Germany from that time. <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> Now, I'm a big fan of this one. You, I, you know, I was looking at the filmography of the author or the screenwriter. You mentioned that. And, you know, I mean, he was, he's one of these guys that did a lot of work on television, but I'm also seeing things like uh, The 30 Foot Bride of Candy Rock, which was a, you know, Costello, <laughs> Lou Costello movie. Um, yeah. You know, so he was kind of all over the place, but he did do the first creature from the Black Lagoon as well. So there's at least a little bit of that follow through there or, or, or continuity, I suppose. Right. It doesn't look like he worked on the second one, though. Okay. Which, again, is a departure from the first, and not as much as this one, though. I mean, this one's just could be its own thing, really. Well, you know, in, in getting prepared for this, I, I rewatched the, the second one, and I posted about some, con- well, not continuity issues, but head scratchers that most people don't notice. But in the first film, and even the second film, you know, you, they, they travel upriver probably days, if not weeks, to the Black Lagoon, and it's obviously fresh water. <laughs> yeah. And, and then, first of all, Think about this. They captured this thing in a coma, and then they crossed the Gulf of Mexico sure. in a boat, sure. a tiny boat, <laughs> for, what, days if not weeks to get to the east coast of Florida, and the thing is still in a coma? Um, and then they throw it into a saltwater tank. Science. Science! Right? <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like, how'd they keep it alive on the boat for so long? <laughs> You know, when they get it into the tank, the guy's walking it around, presumably for hours, trying to you know, keep the... But what did they do on the boat? Right, that's true, yeah. <laughs> Just sitting there in the tank. Yeah, you know, they throw it in the salt water. No wonder it tries to escape. It's in the wrong water. Yeah, true. Yeah. You know, and they even make it so like, he won't eat any of the fish in the tank. Well, duh. <laughs> yeah. And meanwhile, you know, He's in the same tank as sharks. Why would you put your most valuable <laughs> specimen ever in a shark tank? In a shark tank. 
doesn't make a lot of anyway. Uh, you know, we look at these movies a little too close, and we start. But <laughs> you know, and I love them. I love them. Don't get me wrong, yeah. I do. Uh, but I feel like a lot of the movies from the fifties, especially when the budgets were getting smaller and smaller. You start to poke a little bit. Yeah, you know, it doesn't matter. They make a smile. So <laughs> a lot of this stuff is, you know, because I have a background in marine biology and aquaculture. Oh no! This, yeah, this is like, <laughs> oh, that's wrong. <laughs> can't do that. <laughs> yeah. So it, was it you the other day on Facebook that was talking about the the different fish in the tank clearly not being the right? Yeah. Okay, that yeah. was you. Okay, I thought yeah. so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's just like, yeah, that's not gonna work. You, there are animals, fish that can go from freshwater to saltwater to brackish water. They can do that, but they usually do it slowly. They have to acclimate. You can't just throw them into the into the pond. No, you, so you can't just dump them in and call it good. Yeah. No. And once again, you know, where on the boat? You know, think about this: if you're you're constantly recirculating new water through the tank on the boat, where are you getting the, the giant tank of water, fresh water, to do that? Right. So okay, so there if you could possibly acclimate him on the journey back, but you know once again, I'm, this is little details that only like people with marine biology background would notice. <laughs> so and you know the bigger thing is that you look at the the Black Lagoon footage and it's like that's so clearly Florida. That's I'll, all the right vegetation. Well, and, yeah, I mean they, they shot so much. Of it. I was going to ask you since you're in Florida. Have you ever been to any of these locations, or, or are you able to say, yep, that's exactly where that is? I have been to Coola Springs. Okay. So here's this weird thing. <laughs> the house I live on is on Coola Springs Way. <laughs> <laughs> so. That's fantastic. See, to me, if I was house shopping, that'd be a selling point. That's yeah. A- <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's obviously central or south Florida. All the vegetation is right. All the fi- You can look at the fish species and it's like, oh, yeah, those are like this species. And it's just – it's clear. So, yeah, you, you're <laughs> like, that's not the Amazon. No, but I mean you think about – I mean in the 50s, so it's not like people can go on Google Maps and, no. and look and see. So – but yeah, yeah, no, I hear yeah, and that, that that is the thing. You know, in the fifties, very few people would have known. You know, hat, you know, the vast majority of the United States would not have known that. Right. But the other thing is, it's like, oh, I'm in the Amazon, upriver, and you know, there are alligators and weird fish and panthers and things in the jungle. But I'm just going to go for a casual swim and not tell anybody about it. Right. <laughs> That's the. It's like, wait, all the men went down into the into the boat to look at this thing and then you're, you're just going to go for a swim and not tell anybody. I appreciate the moment that we get with, with seeing Kay Lawrence, you know, Julie Adams and then her stunt double, yeah. um, you know, do, do the moment in the water and the swimming and all that. But to be clear, to be honest, it's clearly an excuse to show off underwater filming and 3d tech. I mean, it really is. If that was a 80s slasher movie. Oh, she'd be dead. That girl's gonna die. Yeah. The whole audience would know it. Yeah, and, and she would disappear, and that's the last time you see her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, it's just sort of like okay, yeah, I can live with it, but it's fun. It's a fun movie to watch, and it does move the story along. Sure. Uh, because it establishes that the creature from the Black Lagoon likes uh, women in white bathing suits. Well, don't we all? I mean, come well, on. You would think over the course of several years that. The style would change, but apparently not. No, that's true. Yeah. So I, I adore these films. I mean, they, like I said, and anybody who spends more than 10 minutes with me will know 
because I can't stop talking about it. Creature from the Black Lagoon is my end-all, be-all film. It is my favorite film of all time, period, from the monster design to the music to the 3D to Julie Adams. I mean, I just love everything about the movie. The other two films hover right there in my top ten, uh, just because I just cannot get enough of them. And, you know, to kind of bring it back to this film in particular, even though the creature is what brought me to the party, I find myself enjoying so much more about this film. Yeah, uh, it is so similar yet different, and the Frankenstein connection—something I hadn't considered—and I guess I'm just gonna have to go back and rewatch it again, even though I just watched it last night, to see if I can find even more of <laughs> this Frankenstein. Darn, I have to watch another creature from the Black Lagoon movie. Bummer. Now that we've, we're talking about it, you know, he's walking out of the the enclosure and he's heading toward the beach, and they're like, "He has lungs now; he'll drown." Yeah. And it sort of reminds me of that scene in The Bride of Frankenstein, We Belong Dead. Yeah. And, you know, he's sort of like, I know I have lungs. I've tried to swim. I failed. I know I'll drown. I don't care. I just I just want to go to where I'm supposed to be. And yes. I don't let, belong here. That's for sure. Let, let me die at home. Even you know, I just it's it's heartbreaking. Yes, it's heartbreaking. It's sad, and all he wants to be is loved. Right. <laughs> uh, it's kind of a downer in that it's also a very definitive ending. You know, there's not going to be another film because the young man kind of wanders off, and that's that. I assume. I mean, I don't know if there were plans for a fourth or whatever, but well, you know, let's talk about that. Okay. Because. The creature dies in the first movie. Well, that's true. And you see the exact same shot of him dying in the second when he's drifting down with the bullet holes in him. Right. So, yeah. I mean, the first one you could say, oh, he died. The original one died and another one moved into his territory. Okay. So there's there's more than one. There's like so a, a you little... Could, you can make the argument that there's more than one. Okay. Well... And at one point, hadn't they considered making uh, maybe like a remake or whatever where there was a family of them? Yeah. Well, I think there's – um, oh, God. What's his name? Jeff Rovin, I think. Oh, yeah. He wrote this this novel for um, The Creature from the Black – I think it's called The Creature Out of Time or something like that. So Jeff Rovin actually wrote Return of the Wolfman, which is a fantastic novel. I've talked about it here on the show before. Yep. Um, but I think the one you're referring to is actually part of that series that Dark Horse did a few years later. Where okay. There was a Frankenstein book, a Dracula book, a Bride of Frankenstein right. book. And the creature one was, man, I can't remember the guy's name. I'll, I'll have to look it up. But it was a, definitely a sci-fi time travel type story. Right. Where there's an entire family of you know, refugee alien creature from the Black Lagoons. Right. That's an option. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But obviously filling the the animal with bullets and then having it come back in the next movie doesn't make a lot of sense to me either. But let's keep in mind that universal monster films were not known for continuity between films. The original mummy movies are set in what? New England. (laughs) And then all of a sudden the next one is set in like Louisiana Bayou. Yeah. The mummy movies are a terrible example of trying to keep continuity because you've got the geography and then so many years supposedly pass between the films that it's supposed to be like 20 something or other. If you really do the math. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, uh, just to, real quick to go back to that. It's called Times Black Lagoon by Paul uh, DeFilippo. Filippo. Yeah. Okay, I should okay, know that. Yeah. 
Yeah, all right. Which is one of the better of that Dark Horse. Oh, really? Push. Yeah. I mean, the Frankenstein one, he meets Jack the Ripper, which is kind of cool, but the Bride of Frankenstein one's pretty rough. The Mummy one's kind of cast as a slasher. It's, anyway. In part two of my conversation with Pete, we mentioned where people can find him online. I'm going to go ahead and mention it now. He is on Facebook. That's his main presence. However, you can also go to Amazon.com and look up his name. You'll find his author page and find all the books that he's been involved with. The books that he's written, the anthologies his short stories are featured in. It's hard to go wrong with a Peter Rollick book in your hand. Come back next week for part two of my conversation. We're going to keep talking about the creature from the Black Lagoon and a few other things. So that'll be coming soon. you gentlemen science has agreed that unless something is done and done quickly man as the dominant species of life on earth will be extinct within a year of the President of the United States. Stay in your homes, I repeat. Stay in your homes. Your personal safety, the safety of the entire city, depends upon your full cooperation with the military authorities. Yes, cities, nations, even civilization itself, threatened with annihilation because in one moment of history-making violence, nature, mad, rampant, wrought its most awesome creation. But born in that swirling inferno of radioactive dust were things so horrible, so terrifying, so hideous. There is no word to describe them. We may be witnesses to a biblical prophecy come true, and thus will be destruction and darkness come up in creation, and the beasts shall reign over the earth. Yes, the earth, the skies above and the seas below, infested by swarms of nightmare creatures, crueler, deadlier than the armored giants of prehistoric eras. Here is a wild, headlong flight into terror as the desert erupts with the grim battle for survival. Here is a fear-frenzied moment of suspense as mankind totters before a thing that multiplies faster than it can be killed. Here is a desperate plunge into the black depths of the earth where human courage challenges the brute force, the slashing jaws, the poison fangs that guard the subterranean nest where the beast spawns its terrible progeny. To all units, to all units, condition red, grain 267 is the target area. Repeat, condition red, grain 267 is the target area. We can't take a chance. It might poison the whole city. Submitted for your approval, Craig Beam, a 40-something-year-old man-child. In some respects, your typical Pacific Northwest inhabitant, that breed of male who prefers T-shirts to neckties, drinks too much beer, 
and perpetually sports facial hair regardless of the current trends. But he's also got one foot planted firmly in the global phenomenon known as nerddom. He possesses an unassailable fondness for action figures, funny t-shirts, and cute internet memes. And somewhere in the gray, misty region between those two disparate aspects of his personality, he possesses a single-minded and passionate preoccupation. He's obsessed with, of all things, the Twilight Zone. And much to the chagrin of his long-suffering family, he can't shut up about it. And starting this fall, he's going to make you suffer too. Is it a podcast or a cheesy morning radio show? Or some ungodly hybrid of the two? Find out for yourself on September 1st, 2016, when Between Light and Shadow, a Twilight Zone podcast, officially thrusts its awkward and ungainly self upon the world. You'll find it in all the usual podcast places, whether you want to or not. God help us all. You will freeze as you watch a warped scientist become transformed into a godless beast when his bloody scalpel probes the forbidden secrets of a woman's flesh. In Atom Age Vampire, you will flame for the stark ritual of a beautiful girl's last searing dance as tragedy forever mars her loveliness, leaving her to face a world of terror. I give you my word that I will restore your face, restore all your beauty. You will cringe as the demented doctor experiments with a girl's trusting innocence. But to possess the living miracle wrought by his twisted genius, he must forever sacrifice his soul to the cunning gods of evil. I'll transplant directly from another human being. A mad creature born of the atomic age, now shackled to a world of rotting bodies and violent death. A sadist, a criminal, a depraved animal, more ferocious than Jekyll, more monstrous than Frankenstein, more bloody than Dracula. Fire a volley through the window page. You will gasp as lust and madness stalk the darkened screaming night in Atom Age Vampire. A couple of weeks ago, I was interviewed by a vampire. Count Drahoon invited me to be part of his show. You can find it over at camcorder.tv.com. Look for Count Drahoon's Feature of Fright. Of course, I'll leave a link in the show notes. It was about a 20, 30-minute conversation. Had a lot of fun chatting with the Count. Talked a little bit about my background, how I got into podcasting, and all the different podcasting projects I've got going on right now and coming up. Big thanks to Count Drahoon for allowing me to be part of his show. I love chatting with people. I love chatting with other monster kids and fans of these classic and sometimes not so classic monster movies. So much so that I'll come on your show and do it. So if you have a podcast or some other outlet and you want me to come by and talk monster movies or just talk about Monster Kid Radio in general, drop me a line, monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Thanks again, Count. You know, I've said it before and I'm going to say it again. And maybe I'm not saying it, but I'm asking this question. Maybe it's a hypothetical. I'm not sure. You tell me, but what is it? about fans of these classic monster movies that drives us all to be so creative. And I'm not talking about myself, even though I'd like to consider myself a writer. 
I'm talking about people that we've had on the show in the past. Peter Rollicks, an author, for example, Christopher R. Mim, Joshua Kennedy, a couple of filmmakers, Stephen D. Sullivan. And he's famous to me for a number of different reasons. But right now, he's got a new crowdfunding project called Tournament of Death 4. He's got a Kickstarter page set up where you can watch a video about Tournament of Death 4. And it sounds a little something like this. Hi, Steve Sullivan again. You know what this is about. Tournament of Death. 16 days, writing a novel, live, online, and delivering a chapter every day during the summer games. Yeah, it's crazy. But this is the fourth time I've done it. Or rather, attempted it. The first three times, I succeeded. Will I succeed this time, or crash and burn? Throw a couple of bucks my way and find out. Because this is going to be the best one yet. Book four, the final book in the Tournament of Death series. This is the one where all the secrets I've hinted at in the other books will be revealed, and where you find out, for good, who lives and who dies. And you can be a part of it. You can help me shape the storyline live. So, become a backer. You can just tune in for the story live. You can get the print or ebook, or you can even put a character or a group that you help create into the mix. You decide how much involvement you want and what you want to pay. But join now. The tournament's golden tickets will go fast. And this is a show you don't want to miss. Back Tournament of Death 4 today. Thanks. See you in the final Tournament of Death. It's the start of a new month, so I thought we'd do another executive producer roll call here on Monster Kid Radio. Actually, we're going to do this every month. We're going to recognize those of you who have supported Monster Kid Radio at the Toho level or higher through our Patreon page over at patreon.com slash monsterkidradio. Executive producers for the past month include Mitch Gonzalez, George McGowan, Thomas Broussard, Tracy and Scott Morris, Joseph Perry, Jeremy Lamastis of Shade of Jeremy Designs, Jeffrey Owens, Stephen Turner, Frank Schildener, Sean Hode, Richard Chamberlain, John Kilgallen, and Dorado Films and First Line Films. Thank you for supporting Monster Kid Radio at the Toho, Hammer, or Universal level or higher, and thanks to everybody who participates as a patron of Monster Kid Radio. Without you guys and gals, it'd be harder to keep the lights on here. Okay, actually, it'll just be harder to pay for the hosting and all that of Monster Kid Radio. So thank you so much from the bottom of my monster-loving heart. This does bring us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Before we go, I want to make sure everybody gets a chance to head over to monsterkidradio.net. This is where you're going to find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes. There's links to that Facebook page and that Facebook group that I mentioned at the top of the show. There's a link to our Patreon page. There's a link to every single song that's appeared here on the show in the past. And our contact information is over there as well. MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com is our email address. Our voicemail line is 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. You can also subscribe to the Monster Kid Radio Gazette. That's the Monster Kid Radio e-newsletter that comes out, well, as often as I can make it come out. There will be an issue coming out this month. So if you want to subscribe to that, get some extra Monster Kid goodness in your email box, that's how you do it. Keep in mind that it would be coming from the monsterkidradio at gmail.com email address. So open up your spam filter. So let that in. If that's something that you want to receive in your email box when we put out a new release. 
Next week on Monster Kid Radio is part two of my conversation with Peter Rollick about The Creature Walks Among Us and a few other things along the way. You know, I've learned lately, especially in some of the more recent episodes of Monster Kid Radio, staying on task can sometimes be a little bit more difficult than I'd like because we love these movies so much. We talk about one movie, we start talking about another one and another one. I mean, last week was supposed to be the Navy versus the Night Monsters and Godzilla music came up. What are Pete and I going to talk about next week in addition to The Creature Walks Among Us? Well, come back next week to find out. New episodes will go up at monsterkidradio.net. You can also find us in Stitcher and iTunes. If you're an iTunes user, please consider giving us a review in the iTunes store. I think we're at 70 reviews right now. Can we get that up to 80 within the next couple of months? Well, with your help, I think we can do it. Before signing off, that movie quote from the very beginning of the episode. Again, it was, what kind of deals do you have with the director of the morgue? That line comes from the 1958 Boris Karloff film, Frankenstein, 1970. The one, the only, king of monsters brings you the demon of the atomic age. Boris Karloff as Frankenstein, 1970, carrying on the hideous experiments of his infamous ancestor. In this stone sarcophagus, deep in the bulls of the earth, he buried his creature his creation. Frankenstein, 1970. In the hell pit of his centuries-old castle, he perverts the terrifying wonders of nuclear science Miss get you some eyes. to unleash a horror beyond all imagination. What kind of dealings do you have with the director of the morgue? Are you interested in corpses? Even the cyclotron concealed in his subterranean vaults cannot complete his foul creation, for which he must have throbbing vital organs transplanted from living beings. people are missing and I want to know why they haven't come back. Mr. O, I imagine, would have us suspect foul play. Chris Karloff as Frankenstein, 1970. Original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Calling Cthulhu. That belongs to the band The Suction Cups. You can find them at thesuctioncups.bandcamp.com or look them up on Facebook. They are based out of Springfield, Illinois, so if you're around town well, and you run into them, let them know that Monster Kid Radio said hi, won't you? I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao.